I'm pumped up. I'm pumped. It's been a great weekend, great service. Third time's a charm, so here we go. Father, we're just excited about what you're doing in our lives. We're excited what you're doing in our church. We're excited about the plans you have for our future. And Lord, we know that for us to achieve the future that you have designed for us, that we have to be hitting on all cylinders, that we each have to be finding our role, our calling, our purpose in this movement of yours, this new community you came to create. And so today, Lord, is an important part of that as we unpack, explore your word as to what it says about our calling, what it says about our purpose, what it says about our giftings. So we pray that as a church, you'd give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today about seven years ago. It was the fall of 2001, and that's when he first started hearing the voices, uh, in fact, they were coming through the wall of his apartment the best he could tell. Uh, he assumed at first that probably what had happened is that his, his neighbor had sublet some rooms out to some new tenants, and that's what he's hearing. But he would hear them talking throughout the day and in the night and in the middle of the night. And something about them, to be honest, seemed a little bit strange. Well, he couldn't really put his finger on it. It went on for about two and a half months that fall. Um, and on top of that, there were some strange noises began to happen in his apartment. Uh, for example, he'd be in his bedroom and he would hear a strange beeping sound coming from the living room, almost like, a, like an answering machine that had a, a new message. He was beep and beep, and he'd, but he, whenever he'd go out to the living room, there was nothing there. There was a time um, he was in his bedroom and he heard the sound of rushing water coming from the bathroom, but he was the only one home. He hadn't been in the bathroom. It sounded like someone left the faucet on, so he went up to go check and see if it was on, and, and it, was, it wasn't. It was, it was off. There was no water running. Well, it all came to a head the, uh, the weekend of New Year's that year, 2002. That year, New Year's fell on a Tuesday, and so it was like a four-day weekend, and he was going to start celebrating on Friday. And so he did what he'd done for the last several years. He went down to the local liquor store, and he bought four bottles of Jose Cuervo Gold tequila, and, uh, and this is kind of how he would ring in the new year. And so the next four days, he drank four bottles of tequila. And by uh, Tuesday night, he was pretty much wasted. And, uh, and so Wednesday, supposed to go back to work, and he wakes up, and he is sick, sick as he's ever been in his life. He's just got the worst case of alcohol poisoning he's ever had. So he calls in his boss and says, hey, I'm sick, can't come in. Next two days, he's working it out of his system, just as sick as he's ever been, can't even drink water without vomiting. But by Friday, he's starting to come around, the alcohol has left his system, he's, he's kind of getting back to normal. But during those two days, he decided he needed to get his life together. That um, he'd actually, like many, I don't know, 15 years before, a long time before, had actually kind of prayed to receive Christ in his life, but he'd just gotten away from it and didn't been forever. And wasn't a part of his life, but he decided he needed to get control of his drinking. And so he called his boss and he said, look, I need to come clean. I, the reason I'm sick, here's why. And his boss was very supportive and he kind of made the decision. And it's interesting looking back in retrospect that it was that day that he decided to change his life that they showed up. And it turns out that the voices that he'd been hearing for the last two and a half months that he thought were coming through the neighbor's wall had actually been living in his house. And that day, he saw the little girl, first of all. He's about in his living room, and he heard the beeping noise, and he went to check it out once again. And sitting at his kitchen table in the distance was the little girl making the beeping noise. And then he saw the next person. This guy was the guy with the scraggly beard. And he was the angry one that weekend, cussing, swearing all the time. And then there was the man with the nicely trimmed beard. And these were the first three that appeared that weekend. By the end of the weekend, several more had shown up. The longer the weekend went on, the more scared he became. Of course, when they first showed up, he was freaking out like you or I would do. He assumed that he was going crazy. He was losing his mind. He was seeing things. Maybe he'd drunk too much. He'd ruined his brain forever. But the reality was he was stone cold sober at this point. And plus, for the last two and a half months, he heard these conversations, whether he was drinking or not drinking. And on top of that, that weekend, the conversations were extremely lucid and rational. This was not a hallucination. 
In fact, as the weekend went on, they began to have conversations with him, and he could remember them to this day, exactly what they said. As the weekend went on, they became more and more violent. They began to threaten him. And pretty soon by Saturday, they were threatening him to take his life. Today we're continuing our series. It's a study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And for those of you who are brand new here, let me just give you a little, I always like to step back for just a minute or two, kind of quickly bring you up to speed, and then we jump in. And so let me do that. If you're new, uh, this study, The Way, is a study life teach the Apostle Paul. If you're new at this whole Christianity thing, he's one of the greatest leaders, Christ followers of all time. And so what we're doing is this, this series, we've been in it since February, um, that what we've been doing is we've been studying his life and teaching to see what we can learn about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. We've asked him to mentor us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus kicked off over 2,000 years ago? In the early church, that movement was first called, in the book of Acts, The Way. And so every week our strategy is the same. We start by taking a look at his longest and most famous, one of his longest and most famous letters he's ever written, his, his letter to the Church of Rome, Book of Romans, and then we use it as a launching off point to see what else does he have to teach us on that particular topic that he addresses that week. Well, today we come to chapter 12, and if you were here last weekend, you know that we've started our fourth and final mini-series within The Way. This one's called Created for Community. And in this mini, last mini-series, the Apostle Paul is going to get really practical. Now, if you were here the, uh, last week, you know how this goes. He kicks off chapter 12 by saying this. He says, okay, we're Christ followers here, right? We believe in Jesus. For 11 chapters in Romans, we've been spelling out what that means. He came to rescue us and how that works. But now he says, what does it look like to really live for Jesus? And he says it's a, it's a, it's a three-step process or a two-step process. He says the first step is that you give yourself completely to God as a, he calls it a living sacrifice. Remember, we talked about total surrender last week. So the second step is, is that you allow God to change the way you think. Remember he said to be, renew your mind. And he says if you take those two steps, you give yourself to God, you allow him to change the way you think, then you get to experience step number three. You get to experience his perfect will for your life. Remember he said it was good, it's perfect, it's pleasing. If you skip the steps, you don't surrender or you don't let him renew your mind, either skip one of those steps, you won't experience God's will for your life. Well, now in the, in the next four chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to begin to spell out in very practical terms, what does it look like to give your life to Jesus completely? What does it look like to let him change the way you think? And today he's going to say the first step in that process is getting an accurate self-assessment of your life. It's going to be, it has to do with discovering God's purpose for your life, discovering God's giftings for your life. So the steps really go like this. You give your life to Christ, you let him change you from the inside out, and then you serve in the way that he's designed you to make a difference. That's the step, okay? So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at chapter 12 and verses 3 through 8, and then we're going to come back and talk about one big picture principle that flows out of this passage. So take your Bibles. Let's go there. Romans 12, verses 3, 3 through 8. Okay. Paul says, by the grace given to me. Now, the Apostle Paul uses the word grace in a couple different ways. The first way he uses the word is the way we normally think of it. Grace is God's love to us or his mercy, his kindness that we don't deserve, right? We, so we know that, the grace of God. But he also uses the word grace to describe supernatural power, supernatural abilities, supernatural giftings that God gives us to help carry out his purpose on planet Earth, right? And so what he's saying is, by the grace given to me, I, God had graced Paul to be an apostle, to speak to us about what does it you know, be to live the Christian life, to mentor us. And so he says, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, now underline that, every one of you, that if you're a Christ follower here, Paul's got a message for you. Now, if you're not a Christ follower yet, then the message doesn't apply to you yet. It will apply once you give your life to Jesus. But at this point, if you're a Christ follower, this message applies to you. He says um, to every one of you, and he says, here it is. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in other words, not under the influence, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Let's, let's talk about that. So the order of events, you with me on this? The order of events, you give yourself to God, living sacrifice, you let him renew your mind, right? Now that's happened, you're beginning to experience God's will for your life. Now, what's the next thing that needs to happen? The next thing that needs to happen is he says you need to get an accurate self-assessment. You need to have an accurate picture of yourself. Now, what he's going to say, there's a couple ways, in other words, that you need to understand in this new community that Jesus is creating, what's your role? What's your gifting? What's your part in this movement? And so you need to get an accurate view of what he's called you to do in this movement. So there's a couple mistakes that we can make. One mistake is he identifies here. One he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. You'll study in your life group homework this week. But the first mistake, he says, is to think too highly of ourselves. Okay, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In other words, that we're just so impressed with ourselves and our gifts, we think more importantly than our role than we should. The other opposite, and so I call that kind of overestimating. The mistake is to overestimate our value. Okay? On the other side, the other mistake is to underestimate our value. Okay, that we, we, we think, well, hey, because of who I am, my past or whatever, like anyone could do what I do. I'm no one special. I'm no one. I, I just go to church. I just go. I fill up. My, what I do at Rocky Peak is I fill up a chair that would have been empty, you know? And that's sort of my role. I do it once a month. That's what I do. Uh, that's a, um, and so you can make these two mistakes. You can either overestimate your value or you can underestimate your value. Now, well, let me tell you something. In a church like this, I've been a pastor a long time, and in a church like this at Rocky Peak, here's what I've seen, that very few Christians today that I know to, in, in our setting here at Rocky Peak tend to overestimate their value, okay? Um, there's a few of you that have really big heads. <laughs> I, I won't name you, but, but by and large, that's not our problem here, okay? By and large, in a church like this, that our issue is we tend to underestimate our value. I run this all the time. What can I do? Oh, anyone could do what I do. Well, with my past, oh, with my age, with my income, with my whatever, that I just, I, I don't really have a lot to offer. You know, I could kind of be gone and it wouldn't even matter. And so, so Paul says, whatever your mistake is, don't make it. You need to think of yourself with sober judgment, not under the influence. Now, he uses this next phrase. And he says that um, in accordance, you need to think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now, what's he talking about? Well, in the same way that the Apostle Paul uses the word grace in a couple different ways, he uses the word faith in a couple different ways. The normal, word, the normal way he uses the word faith is just to trust in God for something. Right? We, we trust God for something. We have faith. But they also occasionally he uses the word in a sense of an internal conviction. Faith is what I believe to be true. This is the faith I have about this particular issue. This is my faith, you know, on this issue. And we'll see that again in Romans 14. He uses it the same way. But this is my conviction. It's like a spiritual conviction. So what Paul seems to be saying here is this. He says, when God calls a man or a woman to himself, he not only gives you some spiritual supernatural abilities, we call them spiritual gifts, to advance the movement, to create the community, but he also gives you with those gifts a measure of faith, another a level of conviction internally about what you're to do with those gifts. So some of us are called to do, let's say, great things for God, some medium things, some smaller things, right? We're not all called the same thing. So like, like take Billy Graham, who's called to do something great for God, to have a worldwide ministry, and God gave him a measure of conviction about that, a measure of faith about that. Now, if someone else, they might think they're the next Billy Graham, but they're not. They're trying to be something they're not. They don't really have the faith, the conviction about that. They just have the hope of that, you see? And so, so God not only gives us a gift, he gives us a measure of faith, a conviction about how we're to use that gift. And so Paul says, whatever the measure of faith is, whatever your conviction, use it in accordance with that. Now, in verse 4, he's going to move on to one of the most famous analogies in the New Testament, famous metaphors. How many of you have heard the expression, the body of Christ? Can I see your hands? 
Yeah, it's like most of us have probably heard that, that the only people here you probably haven't heard, if you're brand new at this Christian thing, you may not have heard that expression. But, the, but Paul's going to use this metaphor, and he's going to say that, okay, in this new community that Jesus is creating, it's like we all are part of his body. So just like we have a human body, and we have different members of the body, so we have arms or fingers or toes, and they have different functions, different roles in the body, that's so that when a man or a woman gives their life to Jesus, that we're spiritually connected to Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about this more later, but it's really pretty amazing. What he says is our physical bodies become an extension of his body because of this we're networked in through his Holy Spirit. And that each of us is gifted in different ways so to carry out and do what Jesus would do if he were on planet Earth. You follow me this? So if Jesus were here, he had a physical body, right? And he would do things. He would do all kinds of cool things. Well, guess what? We are now his body, all networked in, and he's doing his work in the world, not in one little area, but all over the world through his networked body that we, that we are. And so he's going to use this analogy. And so he says in verse 4, he says, just as, um, just as each of us has a body, a f- we, you know, each of us has a physical body with one body, with many members, you know, arms, legs, toes, and all, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body. We're the body of Christ. And catch this, each member belongs to all the others. Now, I want you to underline that. Each member belongs to one another. What's he saying? saying when you come to Jesus and you're given certain supernatural giftings or later in life, sometimes he'll give you later in life giftings, okay, that those gifts don't belong to you alone, that your gifts belong to me and my gifts belong to you. Then the church of Jesus, we're like a spiritual commune, okay, that, that we share each other's gifts. So you might have the gift of teaching. I might have the gift of encouragement. We belong to one another, right? We, we own each other's gifts, so to speak. We belong to one another. So what this means is if, if you're gifted in an area and you're not using your gift, you're ripping me off. You see? You get that? And if, if I'm not using my gifts, I'm ripping you off because we're all in this together. You see? Okay, now, verse 6, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Here's that word grace again. Paul graced Paul to be an apostle. He's graced you to do certain things, and we each have been gifted. In fact, in the Greek, the word for grace is the word charis. The word for spiritual gift is charismata, where we get our word charismatic from. And so grace and gifts in the New Testament are very closely, they're the same root word. The, the gifts of God are always gifts of grace, you see, the gifts that we don't deserve. So he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. And now he's going to give us seven different examples. Now, that, as far as we know, these are random examples. There may have been some reason in Paul's mind. We have no idea why he chose these seven. This week in your life group homework, uh, you'll see other lists of, of gifts. Throughout the New Testament, there's actually five passages in the New Testament that give spiritual gift lists. And no two are the same. They just seem to be kind of random. They're not exhaustive lists, like these are all the gifts out there. Just examples of, for example, okay? So he's going to give us seven examples. Let's walk through these examples. He says, uh, verse, uh, middle of verse 6, If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. So he says, some people in the body of Christ are going to have the gift of prophecy. Now, what's the gift of prophecy? Well, the gift of prophecy is the ability to speak a fresh word from God, a specific message from God to a specific, specific uh, person or situation, group from God. So it's like a, a, a special kind of for, your, you, know, for you only, this, this message from God. Someone has a, gets a message to give to you. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. This is a very powerful gift. I've experienced this many times where someone has had a word, a message from God for me. It's very specific. Uh, it's like, how could they know that? It's very unique. Uh, it's, it's very supernatural. Where God has a specific message for me from someone else. It's a very powerful thing to have the God of the universe deliver you a specific message. So it's a great gift for the body of Christ to have. Now, in the book of Acts, of course, this gift shows up quite often. 
In fact, sometimes you even have prophets named, like there was a prophet named Agabus, which I don't know what his parents were thinking, but, <laughs> but his name was Agabus, and a couple of times we have examples where Agabus would get a specific word or instruction for a particular congregation or group. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, we have the, uh, the uh, leaders of the church of Antioch. They're praying and fasting, and God speaks, as far as we know, from a prophetic word. It says you need to set, up, set apart Paul and Barnabas, two of your key leaders, and send them out on a special mission. These are examples of prophecy, a specific message for a spe- specific time. Now, he says, if that's your gift, then let him use it in proportion to your faith. In other words, what does God put in your heart to do with this gift? Uh, don't try to speak for God when he hasn't spoken, but don't keep quiet when he's, when he's speaking. Use it in proportion to your faith according to what God's putting in your heart to do. Now, verse, uh, next verse, uh, verse 7, if your gift is serving, let him serve. Okay, so some people have the gift of serving. Now, this is an interesting gift because we all are called to serve, aren't we? As Christ followers, we're all called to serve. And yet there are certain people in the body are like super servants, all right? They're just really good at this. And, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting because remember what I said, there's a tendency sometimes to over, uh, overestimate our value or underestimate our value? Well, we do this in the body of Christ all the time. There's certain gifts that are more obviously supernatural. And because of that, we tend to overestimate their value. A gift of prophecy, for example, would be like that. I mean, when someone comes up to you and speaks a word from God that there's no way they could know, it's like, that's pretty amazing, right? It's clearly supernatural. And as a result, we tend to overestimate the value. Wow, you must be spiritual. You must be amazing. You must be so tight with God. And the reality is, the New Testament teachers, there's no connection between spiritual gifts and spiritual maturity. The church of Corinth is a great example. They had all these gifts like prophecy, but they're the most immature church in the New Testament. And so we tend to look at a gift like prophecy and say, well, you must be, uh, this must be, this is so supernatural, we, we overestimate its value. And then we look at a gift like serving, and we tend to underestimate its value because it's not obviously supernatural. You know, it's like, hey, that guy just set up chairs. Wow, God showed up, you know? <laughs> And so we tend to look at gifts like that are service, and, and we tend to underestimate, and yet this is a supernatural ability, the, the ability to just serve with distinction, um, super servant. And now how do you know if you, if you have this gift? Well, a couple ways. One is that you just have a way, you just always see what needs to be done and love doing it. You just have, you just have an eye for this. You have radar. You're, you're in a group, the meeting's done, and you're like, you're setting up chairs. Why? Because it just needs to be done, obviously. Uh, you're in a task force or something, and, and everyone's got these big global plans, but you can see these little things, these steps that need to happen, and you're just like right there, and you've got this gift of service. And you just you enjoy serving. You enjoy helping others fulfill their dreams. You enjoy finding leaders with a great vision and saying, I want to help that leader accomplish that vision. So one way that you know you have the gift of serving is that you're just so good at it. You're just drawn to it. You see needs. But you know the, way, the other way you find out if you have the gift of serving? You get really irritated at everyone else who doesn't see the needs. <laughs> You're like, am I the only one here that sees this? Every time I set up the chairs, you know, it's like, like why don't they see this as clear as a, the, the nose on their face? And, and so, so anyway, the gift of serving, very important gift. Okay, third, third, um, third gift. The third gift is a gift of teaching. If you have the gift of teaching, let him teach. And so, of course, obviously, gift of teaching, very important. Because if the body isn't taught, then how do they grow up? How do, how do we know what we're supposed to do? How do we become mature in Christ? So the gift of teaching, very important. Now, um, how do you know if you have the gift of teaching? Well, one of the ways you know is that when you teach, other people have the gift of listening. Yeah, yeah, right. H- have you ever known someone that they think they have the gift of teaching, but no one else think has the gift of listening? And they teach. <laughs> I, I think this has happened in churches all across America. Sometimes you see a church dying, and what's happened is you have a, a leader of that church that really doesn't give the teaching. And so he's a really nice guy. No one knows how to tell him, right? But early on, he went to ministry because he thought he wanted to serve the Lord, and this was the best way to do it. But he doesn't have the gift of teaching. Well, if you have the gift of teaching, the way you can tell is that other people grow when you teach, you see? Now, this, this leads to an important fact. Is that by definition, 
one of the ways you know if you have a gift is if you're good at it, right? Like, how do you know if someone's a gifted baseball player? Well, from the time they were young, they were just better than the average bear, right? I mean, they just went out there, and they just, they were just like better. They were just sort of natural at it. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't have to work at it to get better, and our spiritual gifts are the same way. The more you use it, the more you'll get better at that. So you have to work at it still, but there's a natural ability. Now, the gift of teaching, of course, and like this is true with many of the gifts, they come with different uh, packages. Like some of us are taught, uh, are gifted to teach in large settings, some in small settings, some in medium settings. Some are gifted to teach men, some are gifted to teach women, some are gifted to teach kids. So there's different callings within the gifting, and yet it's the same gifting, right? That's, it's happening. Okay, that's the gift of teaching. Now, the next gift, uh, if, the, uh, if, it's, if your gift, verse 8, is encouraging, let him encourage. Now, this is one of those gifts that we tend to underestimate its importance. And the reason is because you can't put it on a flow chart, no org chart. Like, if you say, like, well, what ministry? Am I? I'm in the parking ministry. Oh, man. Yeah. I said the wrong thing. <laughs> Obviously, I don't have that gift. Um, like, if you're in the parking ministry, and I say, what do you do? Well, here's what we do. Well, who do you report to? Here's my leader. Well, here's the head, and here's staff. Why here's the head. And you can put it on a flow chart, right? If you lead a life group, we can chart it out. Who's your director? Who's your coach? Who's this? Okay, here's you go. Here's you. But if you have the gift of encouraging, it's really more of an informal gift, isn't it? And I want to put a neon lights around this. This is the way it works. Certain gifts are very formal gifts. Certain gifts are informal gifts. And, and often we tend to undervalue informal gifts because you can't schedule encouragement, right? You don't say like, hey, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I go to the church to encourage people. Anyone who's discouraged comes in that night, boom, that's when I do it. You know, from 7 to 9, if they miss it then, too bad for them. They're just out. Now, yeah, the gift of encouragement is kind of a spontaneous thing. Now, how do you know if you have this gift? Well, if, if you, uh, people with the gift of encouragement, they tend to have a radar for discouraged people. And they also, they have the ability to know what to say or to do that's truly encouraging, right? Now, if you think you have the gift of encouragement, but after talking to people, they're more depressed than before. <laughs> well, you see where I'm going. All right. Okay, yeah. Now the next gift, middle verse 8, if it's contributing to the needs of others, let them give generously. Now, here's a gift much like serving, that we are all called to serve, aren't we? We all, we all call to serve, and yet there's certain people that have the gift of serving. They're super servants. Well, in the same way, we're all called to be givers, right? That as Christ followers, Jesus made it really clear, if you're serious about following me, one of the things you need to pass over on the table is your wallet. You need to hand over, your, you need to hand over the keys to your finances. No one can serve God and mammon, money. That's what Jesus said, okay? And so as Christ followers, we understand this, that when we come to Jesus that we relinquish our resources to him to use as he wants. And there's certain kinds of giving we're all required to do. It's part of the kingdom thing. So we, we talk about the tithe, the regular giving to his ministry. We talk about meeting the needs of people in the body of Christ, like, like uh, in our life group and things like that. We talk about giving to the poor. We talk about different kinds of giving, giving to special projects, building projects, like in the Old Testament, the temple and things like that. And there was different kinds of giving. And so we understand as Christ followers, if we're serious about following him, this is part of it. We all, we all use our resources to advance his kingdom. But there are certain people that have a gift of giving. And these are people that they just love to give. They see needs, their heart flows to them. And they're not the sort of person they're going to stop at 10% or 12%. They're just like whatever they have, they just want to give to people. And it's a, it's a beautiful gift. Uh, I think of uh, uh, people, the gift of giving. Uh, you know, and it's funny because, um, uh, let me say this about it, that, that this doesn't really go with the amount of money you have. Notice some people have very little money, but they can still have the gift of giving. You see, some people have a lot of money. Uh, I think of someone with a lot of money who's got the gift of giving that we would all know. And here's Rick Warren, you know, pastor down at Saddleback. 
that he's made, what, a bazillion, he sold more books than anyone in the history of the world, I think literally, and, and, and he's, he's made a bazillion amount of uh, dollars, and, and do you know that he made a decision that he was going to pay back his church for all the salary he's ever taken from, from that over the 20 years or 25 years he's been there. And, and I just want to go on record here <laughs> that I've told God that if I ever make a bazillion dollars, I'm paying back the church. I just, it's just one of them, just going public with that. Yeah. Yeah, just because, because I too have the gift of giving. Um, <laughs> But in all seriousness, you know, Rick made a decision a long time ago that he gives 90% of his income to the Lord and lives on 10%. Now, he's got a big 10%, but still, you get the idea. Very few people do that. He's got the gift of giving, you see, and a very important gift. And so what he says is if, you have the, if, if that's your gift, he says, let them give generously. And in other words, don't measure your giving by the rest of the church's giving. Just like don't measure serving like the other uh, people serve. That's your gift, and so... So you're going to give over and above. You're, going to, you're not going to stop at 10% or what. You're probably going to give more, way more than that. You're going to give sacrificially. Why? Because this is your gift, and God's really gifted you. And he can trust you. If you have the gift of giving, God can trust you with resources because you won't just stop at a certain point. You'll, you'll continue you know, giving. And he says, so that's your gift. Don't, don't you know, give generously. Okay. And the next one, he says, if your gift is mercy, uh, no, leadership. If your gift is leadership, let him govern diligently. Now, a uh, very important gift, obviously, the gift of leadership, because, and this is at every level in the movement. I'm thinking of leadership as like my role or elders' roles, and of course, those are leadership roles, but leadership operates at every level, right? There's leadership in the parking ministry, there's leadership at life groups, there's leadership in children's ministry, there's leadership in homeless shelters, I mean, there's leadership at every, and, and this is a very important gift because the movement, the body of Jesus can't thrive and grow without leaders doing their thing. If, if leaders don't lead, then the church will be chaotic. Like Jesus said, these are like sheep without a shepherd because of the lack of, of leaders. Now, let me just do a little sidebar here for a second, how important this is in our body right now. Because I believe that God has some amazing things for us in the future, but very much this is going to be tied to those of you with the gift of leadership of stepping up. Now, many of you already have gifts of leadership, and you're using your gifts, and so God bless you. But there's some of us here that probably have that gift, but we're not currently using it. Or God is just beginning to reveal to you that you have your gift, and you're getting nervous. It's like, oh, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't think I'm really a leader. You know what I'm talking about. And if, you've been, if you're a leader now, you remember those days when you first went through that experience. But let me just give you one example. Like here in our church, we've built our whole church around these small groups called life groups. They're the hub of everything we do. It's heart and soul of Rocky Peak. This is the way we do church. And so what that means is it's vital that we have enough groups. We have enough leaders. We have enough hosts. And, and like we're facing a need right now. Let me give you an example. In September, one thing I ask every week from the life group department is I want to know how many openings do we have left in our system? Every week, would you tell me how many spots do we have left globally? Now, we've got a ton of groups, but how many spots do we have left? And they might answer back after a couple weeks of signups or whatever. Okay, we've got 129 spots left of open groups. But then I always ask the follow-up question, tell me what kind of openings we have. Give me a demographic breakdown. And so they might come back and they'll say, well, if you're single, we've got 15 slots for you. If you're married with, uh, with adolescent kids, we've got this many slots. And you know what happened? Like this fall in September, that by the end of the sign-up process, the good news is we had a lot of full groups, a lot, ton of people signing up. But here's the bad news. If you're in certain categories, we just didn't have hard lane for you. So, for example, like if you're like, say, say parents of young children, we might have had only four slots, four openings. And it might be like at a Tuesday night group in Tarzana. What happens if you go to school on Tuesday nights, you, you have a college class on Tuesday nights, or you have to work on Tuesday nights, and you live in Simi Valley? You're out, so you've come part of the Church of Rocky Peak. You want to grow, you want to do real church, you want to jump in. There's no room at the end, you see? Now, you, this, can, this is going to happen to us throughout all of our systems as we grow. Is it that's the same as going to be in third grade uh, children's ministry, or it's going to be in high school ministry, or parking ministry, or whatever? And if you have leadership gifts and, and are not using them, then you can see how you're ripping off. 
the whole church, right? And, I, and I'm just giving this example. There's really no agenda there except that that's a big need that we will have as we continue to grow. So he says, now notice what he says here. If your, need, if your gift is leadership, let him govern diligently. Now, why does he say that? Because can I tell you, the biggest temptation of leaders is to slack off. And sometimes we do it because we're just too busy or have the wrong priorities. But can I tell you something? Sometimes we do it because we get discouraged, don't we? Because leadership is hard work. I remember going through a hard time when I was in leadership one time, and someone had a prophetic word for me. And the prophetic word was continue to love the sheep even when they kick at you. And I'll tell you, that went right to my heart. Because it's exactly what was happening. I was at a specific time leading in a specific way, and there was some sheep that were trying to take me out. And it was like, and God was saying, man, Mike, love the sheep. This is like, this is like what it is to be a shepherd. You lay down your life for the sheep. You know, you're doing what's best for them, even if they're kicking at you. And if you've ever been in leadership, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to go to a life group and have no one do their homework. And say, really? Who needs this? You know what it's like to go to a children's ministry class and have the kids not paying attention and wonder, am I getting through at all? You know what it's like to be in a parking ministry and come out on a Saturday night and be standing in our garden in our cars and it's just freezing cold and it's really boring, but you're the leader and you couldn't get anyone else to do it, so you showed. I mean, you said leadership is hard. And so he says, if that's your gift, he says, do it diligently. Don't slack off, you know, because the body needs you. Now, one last gift he mentioned. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So the gift of mercy, how do you know if you have the gift of mercy? Well, you're just drawn towards hurting people. And you want to make life better for them in just all kinds of practical ways. It might be cooking soup, uh, chicken soup for them. It might be, you know, writing them a note. It might be helping practically in some other way, give them a ride. But you just, you're just drawn towards hurting people. And you look at the body of Jesus and you don't understand why everyone's not like you, just taking care of people, because it just seems like the most important thing in the world. And he says, so if you do it, let them do it cheerfully. Don't get a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> uh, love people, be cheerful about it, use your gift. Okay, so he gives us seven examples. So let's step back now and let's get the big picture of the passage and then talk about the big picture principle. So Romans 12, he says, if you're a Christ follower, you give yourself totally to God, step number one. Step number two, you let him transform the way you think, change the way you think. And then letter three, you discover your area of giftedness and begin to serve. You have a proper view of yourself, a realistic view, not overestimating your gift or underestimating, but using your gift as part of this movement. Now, there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Gifts, the Big Picture Principle. And what I want to do in the balance of our time is just focus in on one big picture principle that in a sense is going to sound kind of obvious at the surface, but as we unpack it, I think you'll see its importance. And it goes like this. According to this passage, here's what I want us to pull away with us, is that you and I are the hands and the feet of Jesus. You and I, as Christ followers, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And the way he says it is we're the body of Christ. Now, again, if you've been a long-time Christian, we've got to wipe our minds free all of a sudden because the, one of the problems of being a Christ follower for any length of time is we get so used to the language of the New Testament, we think we understand it. And so we get the language down. We're not experiencing the reality. We just know the language. So we've got to start over fresh here. I want you to catch what a revolutionary concept this is. Here's what Paul is saying, that when you became a Christ follower, the Spirit of Jesus came to live in your physical body. And so your body now becomes an extension of His body. The way He gets His will done on planet Earth is through us together, through our physical bodies and the gifts He gives us. Now, to get at this, I want to go back and look at something Jesus said back in the, the Gospel of John. So turn back to John chapter 14 real quickly. We're going to look at a couple passages here on this concept. John chapter 14 and verse 23. 
It says, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. So how do we know if we love Jesus? We obey his teaching, right? He kind of spells it out. So what happens if someone says, well, I really love Jesus. In fact, man, I'm into worship. I'm going to be, I'm all out. I'm worshiping. But they're not obeying Jesus. What would Jesus say? Well, no, you don't really love me, right? In fact, uh, you're kind of a liar. <laughs> in fact, in 1 John, uh, the, the Gospel of John writer, John, writes in 1 John, this is how we know if we love him, if we keep his commandments. If anyone says he loves him but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay? So he gets that from Jesus, of course, as all good things come from. And so verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And my Father will love him, so we'll set a chain reaction in. We commit our life to Christ. We, we're going to love him, and we begin to obey him. And it sets a chain reaction. And he says, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and will make our home with him. Now, this is one of the core teachings of the New Testament. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means that the Spirit of God has come to live in your body. Okay? In fact, remember we learned this in Romans chapter 8. Paul said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ in him, he is none of his. Remember that? Look at another passage. Turn with me to the right in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and there are some people in their church that are teaching that after you become a Christ follower, it doesn't really matter what you do with your physical body because your relationship with Christ is essentially spiritual. And so what you do with your body doesn't really matter. So if you want to go out still and you go to the, prince, uh, to the, to, uh, the temple of Diana and you want to have sex with a temple prostitute, it's really no big deal because God really cares about your spirit, not your body. And so Paul says, actually, that's not true. So, he says in chapter 6 and verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Okay, sex outside of a marriage commitment. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. So, he's talking about his physical body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, do you not know that your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't live in temples anymore. He lives in our bodies. Who is in you, you've received from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6 is that, no, it does matter what we do with our bodies because God has come to live in our body. And when you take your body and you have an illicit sexual relationship, you're taking Jesus with you on that journey. And so it becomes a very serious thing. That's why you need to run from sex. You see, so our bodies become an extension of his body, which is why in Romans 12, 1, he says, present your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Your mouth, your speech, your eyes, your ears, your brain, present your body to God. Now, Look at how C.S. Lewis puts it there. Y'all heard of C.S. Lewis, right? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and other brilliant things. Look at the quote that he has here. He's a, he's a brilliant Christian thinker, defender of the faith from Oxford, University of Oxford. Let me make it quite clear. It's there on your note sheet. Let me make it quite clear that when Christians say that the Christ life is in them, there's Christ lives in them, they do not mean simply something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ or of Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or they're trying to copy Him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them. Now catch this, that the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts, that we are His fingers, His muscles, and the cells of His body. You catch this? Our bodies become an extension of his body. And when you come to Jesus, he supernaturally gives some of his personal gifts that he had when he was on planet Earth, gifts like prophecy, mercy, giving, leadership. 
He gives each of us some of those gifts so that we together can do what Jesus would do if he were here at this time, this place physically. You got it? You see it? You see it? This is a powerful thing. Well, what does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that if, we, if you have the gift of prophecy and you're not using that gift, it means there's certain things that Jesus wants to say that aren't being said. If you have the gift of leadership and you're not using it, it means there's certain things Jesus wants to lead that he can't lead. You're tying his hands, you see? If you have the gift of mercy or encouragement or giving, it means, and you're not using them, it means people are going discouraged and people are going to get hurt and not going to get better and there's going to be things that God wants to achieve in their life financially that can't be achieved. You see? Are you following me at this? That he's committed himself to us that we will be his body. He has chosen to limit himself to us and to work through us. But what that means is that we are the hands and feet of Jesus as the church of Rocky Peak. And if we don't use our gifts, we are tying the hands of Jesus. It also means that the movement of Jesus that he wants us to achieve in this area, this space, in this time, will not happen the way he wants it to happen. And catch this, it also means that you will never experience God's will for your life. Because we're told in chapter 12 of Romans, right, verse 2, this is his good and pleasing and perfect will, and the very next thing is use your gift. This is what you've been created for, use your gift. And so if you're not using your gift, it means you're tying the hands of Jesus, the movement will not be what it's supposed to be, and you will never be fulfilled. It is serious stuff, right? So this is powerful truth that the apostle is giving us. Now, let me flesh out just one example, one case study of how Romans 12, 1 through 8, works out in a person's life. We started today with this story of a, a man who was in his apartment, and he began to hear noises and voices, Two and a half months, and you remember the story. And so that weekend, it's Sunday morning. It's been going on all weekend. He's scared to death. He doesn't know what to do. I mean, who do you tell? What do you say? Everyone's going to think you're crazy. He knows that. And so finally, he decides out of desperation to call the police as if they could do something. And so they show up, and once they, they ascertain he's not drunk, he's not high, and he's not crazy, they're like, sorry, we don't have to do it. They a report, and they left. So now it's Sunday morning. He hasn't slept hardly all weekend. The, the, these, these, these beings in his room are getting more and more threatening. They're telling him specifically how they're going to take him out. He's scared to death. And so he begins to call on the name of the Lord. And he begins to pray, God, you've got to deliver me. And to show God that he's serious, he does the first step of Romans 12. He offers his body as a living sacrifice. He goes down to the grocery store. He buys the biggest trash bags he can find. He comes back to his apartment, and he starts to cleanse it of anything dirty or immoral, anything evil. He throws in his, the rest of his Jose Cuervo, his, his alcohol. He gets rid of that. Any drug paraphernalia that he had left over from years before. He had a huge stash of pornography. He'd been addicted to porn for years. He fills up several large trash bags, he told me, several large trash bags, and took them down to the local supermarket and threw them in the, the dumpster behind. And then he remembers that morning. When he gets up, he remembers. He remembers that several years before, he'd got a postcard in the mail from a church. It was a church that was in Chatsworth, California. It was a church somewhere near the intersection of the 118 and Topanga Canyon. It was a church somewhere in the hills. Well, Charles Manson, no, never mind. <laughs> so he gets in his truck, he throws his stuff away, he drives up here, he comes here. It was January the 6th, 2002. He drives to this building, he comes in the back, the service is going on, only 20 minutes left. He hangs out afterwards, he grabs a pastor, tells him the story, would you pray for me for my protection? They pray together that God would protect him. He goes back to his apartment, and for the first time since Friday, the beings are all gone. He walks in. He pulls out his old Bible. He opens up to the Gospel of Matthew. He begins to read the stories of Jesus. 
And as he begins to read, he says he senses the Spirit of God coming on him like a warm blanket from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. The peace of Jesus comes in. He senses a cleansing going on in his whole house. He begins to weep and cry. He knows it's over. And so he's done the Romans 12 what? He's given himself to God and God's shown up, right? Now it's time for the second step to renew his mind. And so what does he do? He begins to read his Bible again. He finds out that at Rocky Peak that that time we had a Monday night recovery group meeting. It was long before CR. He came and God delivered him of his drugs and alcohol. We had a new believers class. He took it like our Christianity 101. He began to learn about Jesus and renew his mind. He joined a life group. His life began to change before his eyes. God was transforming him. Step two, right? Living sacrifice, transformation. Step three, we're fast forwarding now to the fall of 2006. His life group leader says, I think it's time for you to take over this life group and lead it. He says, there's no way I could lead it. I don't have gifts like that. I could never do that. You know my background, the horrible things I've done in my life. I could never be a leader. He says, I see in you leadership. Can I tell you something? Almost, it's not uncommon, let's put it that way, for others to see your gifts long before you do. The reason is you're gifted at it. They're so natural to you, you think anyone could do that. It's others from the outside who recognize that's unusual, that you can do that so well. So he begins bugging him, you need to do this. Finally, he submits and says, okay, I'll give it a shot. So in the, in the winter of 2007 quarter, he begins to lead his life group. He leads it for a year. He's still insecure about it. Is it really my thing? Am I really that good at it? Am I really, have you ever been there? It's like you're, like, you're starting and you're experimenting with a new gift. You're not sure if it's for you. And so after a year of that, we go to the, to the uh, January of 2008. So earlier this year in January, I'm teaching on Haggai. It was an amazing sermon. I know you'll all remember it because you never forget anything I say. It was on the priority of purpose. Remember in Haggai? And, uh, and so uh, we're talking about how when God is working in your life and he's gifted you in an area, when you begin to step out and use that gift, you begin to experience the presence and power of God in your life because he's supernaturally working through you. Remember that? <laughs> You're going, no. Okay, so that's, it, was, it was really true and it was amazing. It was life-changing. Anyway, it was amazing for him because as I was teaching, God spoke to him. And he confirmed to his heart, this is what I called you to do, to be a life group leader. And, and this is what I want you to do. And now with confirmation, he begins to soar. And he begins to just, with new inspiration, take the leader. And, and so he waits about five months, I guess, to make sure it was real. And then he emails me. And so here's what he says. This is from June 15th this year. Uh, Sunday, June 15th. Hi, my, uh, my, path, my name is, and he gives me his name, and I attend on Saturday evenings. I've been coming to Rocky Peak since January 6, 2002, that week, very first weekend. I wanted to send this to you and, and to tell you to thank you and let you know how much I appreciate your teaching and your leadership. This weekend, I was learning a new lesson. It seems I'm finding out that as I'm now a life group leader, I'm just beginning to see how Christ is using me. I accepted the role a year ago when my leader asked me if I would take over the group. I'd been in that group for four years. He kept telling me I was going to be a leader, and all I could say was, no way. Well, guess what? He says, your, your message on the priority of purpose in January of this year was a huge turning point for me. I'd been doing the life group leader thing for a year, and I'd enjoyed it, but I was not that excited about it. Many times I'd go away and I'd say, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So many people are doing so much more than me, not to mention my wonderful past with years of drugs and alcohol prior to coming to Rocky Peak. I've been allowing Satan to think, um, to let me think, how can someone with a past as messed up as mine and with some of the thoughts that still go through my head become a life group leader? Your homework that weekend said that Satan's objective is to keep us on the sidelines by telling us that what we're doing is not that important. Well, between your message and the homework, a light finally went on and I realized I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. I've since been inspired about the life group, and I very much enjoy uh, knowing that I'm finally doing something that God's called me to do. It's awesome. Your message notes that week said that God will meet you in the midst of your assignment, and that's exactly what happened. I finally woke up. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and teaching us what Christ wants us to be. You're an inspiration. And so you see what happens to this guy? You see what happened? Do you see the Romans 12 thing happening in his life? Do you see it? 
He gives his life to Jesus, total surrender. God begins to transform his life and his thinking through the word and a variety of resources. And then one day he realizes that God has created him for a purpose. You catch this? You did not come to Jesus just to live a transformed life. You came to Jesus to be part of his hands and his feet and to do something amazing. And every one of us who's a Christ follower has been uniquely gifted to make a difference. And so he went on and he found his role and now he's thriving. And you see, now we see Romans 12, 1 through 8 being played out in the life of a, of a person. So, so what's your story? Is that happening in your life? Here's my guess. For some of us here, some of us, you are right on target. You're doing exactly what you found your gifts. You're right on target. And God just wants to say to you, go for it. I'm pleased with you. For some of you here, frankly, you're probably neglecting your gifts for whatever reason, busyness, time, laziness, what I don't know, but you're neglecting your gifts. And you, you know what they are, you're just not using them. And there's others of us, probably a lot of us here go, man, I don't have a clue what my gifts are. So, so where do we go from here? Well, there are the back of your note sheet. I want to just kind of write down three or four things real quick before we end of kind of practical steps because I just can't stand to leave a message undone without being a practical, okay? So here we go. Number one, where do I go from here? First of all, do your life group homework this week. Even if you're in a group and you've never done it before, <laughs> this is a time to get right with God and do your life group homework. Okay. Seriously, even if you're not in a life group homework, do your homework because this week we're going to look at a great passage on gifts. There's actually a spiritual gifts test in there. You can go online and take a spiritual gifts test and learn some more about it. That's a great place to start exploring what gifts might I have. It's a great place to start. Number two, sign up for this class that we're doing, uh, uh, Finding Your Place at the Peak. I specifically asked that this class would be taught starting next weekend to follow up on this message because I knew that there'd be some of you here that say, man, I want to learn more about this. This is a great class. It's, we call it, uh, we go over something called SHAPE. It's an acronym. S stands for your spiritual gifts. H stands for your heart, discovering your passions. A stands for your natural abilities God's given you. Uh, P stands for your personality, understanding how God's wired you. And E stands for experiences, as in life experiences. You see, God's been preparing you your whole life to make a difference. This is a five-week class to help you explore how God has wired you. You see, it's a great opportunity. At 9 o'clock service, you can then come to the 11 o'clock service or podcast it or do whatever. It's a great opportunity. So sign up online or on your card today for that. A third thing you can do if you're a reader, there's a book I recommend there by uh, C. Peter Wagner that's on your note sheet on spiritual gifts. Just one of many great books, but it's a good place to begin if you want to learn. Now, the last thing is I want to give you five specific words I'd like you to write down. This is how to find your spiritual gift. I'm just going to race through them, but I'll give you something to think about as you go to your homework this week. Number one, the first word is ask. Uh, the, if you want to find your spiritual gifts, you need to ask God to reveal them to you. Number two, third, second word is watch. You need to watch for, as you're praying about it, watch for opportunities that God suddenly brings along your way. And also watch your passions. What do you care about? What are you drawn towards? Number three, listen. And by listen, I mean listening to others. Others will often recognize your gifts before you. Ask some of them who know you well in your life group this week. What do you think my gifts could be? Do you see anything? Number four, experiment. Often it takes trying three or four things to find the right niche. There's nothing wrong with that. We are not the kind of church that will get you in a position and then keep you there until Jesus comes back. <laughs> I promise you that. Like, we don't want you working with kids if that's not your gift. Our kids mean too much to us. We don't want you messing them up. Okay? <laughs> So we want to get you in the right spot. So try something. You try it a while. If it's not clicking for you, let's try something else. Number five, weigh, as in weighing the results. Like I said, if you're good at something, it'll show up. If you're a teacher, people will learn. If you're an encourager, people will be encouraged. So weigh the results. You're going to get better over time, but you should have some success. You should be saying, like, yeah, this is working. This is, I can see it's making a difference, okay? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church, the way you're calling us on, moving us out, calling us higher, waking us up. We are excited about that, God. And today we've talked about a very important topic about finding your will for our lives, which involves finding out how you've wired us to serve. I pray you'd lead us as a church, that each of us could know that we're carrying out our part of this amazing adventure that you've called us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take our offering now.